economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, Jacob Caudill, our undergraduate scholar for the Gortney Institute. All right, so pretty rare we have the whole team, and we have a new graduate assistant joining us here in a few weeks now, Luke Graham, so we're looking forward to having him on the team as well. And so today, um, we want to follow up a little bit on some stuff with regarding the vaccine and a retraction from an academic journal, and Justin, what do you got to say about that? Okay, so when we did our podcast on vaccination in children and the safety of vaccinations for children, we talked about a paper that was then published in the journal Vaccines by Harold Wallach and co-authors Rainer Clement and Wouter Akema. And this was the paper that said that the data suggests that for every three lives saved by vaccines, we have to accept two deaths due to the vaccine. You can go back and listen to this episode. When we discussed this, I think even on the air, we said, you know, those numbers seem kind of high for deaths by vaccine, but that is what the data that Wallach collected suggested. And he got this data using two studies. So the data for the number of people that you need to vaccinate in order to save a single life, he got from the Israeli field study, which was the largest study done at the time. And the data for adverse reactions to the vaccine, he got from the Netherlands in a data set called the Larib ADR. And these are reports of adverse drug reactions. So that's just to state where the data came from. Now, um, when we recorded that episode, this paper had been published. And I think the day or the day after we recorded this episode, this paper was retracted. So given that there is a big brouhaha right now about going after people who are in the words of you know, our current press secretary, providing misinformation about the dangers of vaccines, I really don't want us to be taken off the air and have our bank accounts suspended. <laughs> so we should say that yes, this paper was retracted, but I wanted to say a little bit about what the complaint against the paper was and why it was retracted and what the author's response to the retraction is. And, and maybe before you do that, let's talk about the process just real briefly for our listeners who may not understand what the academic process is. So you have PhD, doctor types, academic types come up with a new idea, a new theory. They, in this case, do some empirical testing of collecting data and testing it and coming up with results. They submit it to a journal that has a bunch of peer reviewers. So these are other academics that will look at their work, make sure it looks solid, criticize them, maybe ask for corrections or just outright reject it. And so this paper got accepted to be published into the journal. It ultimately got published. Now, due to some these factors you're going over, it's it was retracted officially. Is that a fair summary? 
Yeah. And I want to distinguish here between two different types of complaints you can have about an academic paper like this. So if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were relying on the model put out by the Imperial College of London. And a lot of papers were published that took this model and said, look, according to this model, this many people will die if we don't do X, right? And these papers were published. And a complaint you could make about those papers, you could say something like, well, you actually misinterpreted the model. The data that you are feeding into the model doesn't, the model doesn't spit that out, right? And that would be a coherent objection to the paper. But it would be a weird objection to the paper to say, well, you know, actually the model itself is wrong. The paper can be seen as a kind of hypothesis saying, if the model is correct, this is what it predicts, right? And so usually you don't object to a paper like that by saying, well, actually the model is wrong. I mean, we know after the fact that the model is wrong because those results didn't happen, but those papers aren't being retracted just because the model was wrong. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So one of the, this paper that we talked about in the podcast caused a huge brouhaha in the science community. And a bunch of people objected to this paper immediately. And the objection to this paper, which I want to read word for word, lest I be accused of misrepresenting the author's objection. It says the journal is issuing an expression of concern Serious concerns have been raised about misinterpretation of the data and the conclusion. The major concern is the misrepresentation of the vaccination efforts and the data. The abstract of the paper says, for three deaths prevented by vaccination, we have to accept two inflicted by vaccination. And stating that these deaths are linked to the vaccination efforts is incorrect and distorted because these data don't show that the deaths are causally related to the vaccination. These are only deaths that happen after vaccination, which people self-report as thinking are related to the vaccination. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it, they didn't get hit by a car and died in a car crash, but, but they self-reported that they thought it was related. Yes, and also in some cases, this can be reported by their doctor. But the point is that The objection says these deaths weren't determined to be causally related by like some kind of forensic activity. Yeah. Which similar to COVID is pretty difficult to do. Figure out perfectly which, what caused what. Yes. And you might want to hold on to that idea for a second because it's going to come up. (laughs) I've been um, thinking about that idea for well over a year. So yes. (laughs) Yes. So uh, what happened is then that, A bunch of academics said, yes, look, this data set doesn't show causality, right? Therefore, this paper shouldn't have been published. Therefore, we can retract it. And therefore, we no longer have to talk about vaccines being dangerous at all anymore. So Professor Wallach issued a response to the retraction. And the response to the retraction, I think, is pretty illuminating. And his response is, look, we're grateful for you raising these concerns. However, the data that we got from the LAREB, the Netherlands data about the dangers of the vaccine, it's not that we took some data set that doesn't show causation instead of a data set that does show causation. We took the only data set we have. 
This is the only data we have about adverse reactions to the vaccine. Furthermore, in the text, we literally say it's difficult to establish causation in cases like this, and especially with data sets like this. So we are very clear that this data set isn't an absolute indicator of causation. And, and by the way, for listeners at home, I've heard this sort of argument be used a million. This isn't like a unique, weird argument. A lot of times academics will go to in discussions with reviewers or, you know, peers that they're trying to get to look at their paper. They'll say, I agree that the data is not perfect, but it's the only data I have. I've heard that a million times. It's not a weird or strange argument to make. Sometimes you literally don't have access to the data. You, In fact, all the time, really. You wish you could have the perfect data, but it doesn't exist. And so you find the next best thing. So that's very common. It's, it's not a crazy thing for this to be done. Yeah, you know, I mean, we can go back to Hume and talk about how difficult it is to prove causation anyway, right? Yeah. But what I think is really the nail in the coffin about Wallach's response to this uh, criticism is he says, granted, we're on board with you saying that this data set doesn't show causation, but this is the same procedure that we are using to count COVID deaths. Mm. <laughs> COVID, you know, if you die with a positive COVID test, that is counted as a COVID death. They don't do any more forensic work to determine whether it was the proximal cause of your death. So we are counting COVID deaths. And this was, you know, a big objection early on to possible overcounting is that we are counting dying with COVID and dying from COVID as just COVID deaths, right? Uh, and, and Justin, a, another metric that started to be used is things like excess mortality. And so how many more people died this year than last year? That's even a less precise measure, you know, because not only could, uh, not only is it not looking at people who you know, died from COVID directly, but it's looking at just everyone who died compared to everyone who died in previous years, moving around a few little controls and just assuming the rest are due to something like COVID when, you know, really there could be a number of things, including just statistical anomalies. Well, and if you, like I, think that the lockdowns were probably contributed yeah. to some deaths, then that counts lockdown deaths as COVID deaths too. That's right. So Walk's response is, look, you are using this same method to count COVID deaths in order to show that COVID is so dangerous that we don't have to worry about any <laughs> uh, problems with the vaccine, should there be any problems. And he ends it by saying, look, we hope this stimulates governments or university consortia to collect valid data to prove us wrong. We would be the first to be happy about it, but the challenge is out. Prove that the vaccines are safe. No one has done so. We say they are not, and we use the best data currently at hand. Our usage was correct. If the data was not correct, whose fault is that? So he is saying, look, similar to what I was saying earlier about the Imperial College model thing, you shouldn't retract this paper if the data set that we are pulling from ends up being incorrect. You should only retract the paper if we are misinterpreting the data or misusing the data and we aren't. The calculations that we've done are correct. We quote the organization which collected the data and say that it doesn't prove causation in the paper. So therefore, Wallach thinks that this retraction is not warranted. 
Now, again, just to make very clear, in case Jen Psaki is listening to this or something, <laughs> you know, I am being super serious that this paper was retracted. But I do think that if we look at Wallach's response, I tend to find his response compelling, which is that the retraction seems like it was politically motivated and not scientifically motivated. Now, I will also say that when we discussed this paper, we weren't even angered by the two to three bargain or whatever, right? Because if you're just doing utilitarian calculus, then it still makes, you know, have to sacrifice two people to save three people or whatever. You're still saving a life in the bargain, right? But what we pointed out was that the lives, since the average person dying of COVID is very, very old, and these problems and adverse reactions to vaccinations happen in a lot of young people, that this is a trade-off that uh, we might not want to do just because it seems to be sacrificing younger lives in favor uh, of older lives. And I would think that these numbers could be off by an order of magnitude in both directions. And I still think it would give somebody pause. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, you know, kind of going back to what, what you just brought up when you were talking about the process that went through and how the retraction was decided, one other kind of weird issue and, and the reason why this retraction doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me personally is that it, it's not as if new information came to light that caused this retraction. The peer reviewers at the time, whoever the referees were and the editor had access to the paper, which, you know, very clearly stated what their data they were using is. And the peer reviewers at the time and the editor, the editor has the final say, but I'm sure the, the reviewers weren't outright recommending they reject this paper if it made it through. At the time, with that, the information that did exist, this paper was accepted for publication. So it seems like the factor that changed that caused the retraction wasn't the opinion of peer review, but it was pressure from outside sources. And, and to me, that's, it seems to be, again, I, maybe, you know, the, maybe all the reviewers and the editor missed this. They didn't realize it. But if they did realize it, that seems to be sort of a perversion of the, what the scientific process, the academic process is usually, which is that we entrust the review of the paper to a few people and an editor who's well known, and they're the ones who make the final call. It's not, peer review is not, you put a democratic vote amongst the entire profession and decide, you know, should this paper be in the, the journal or not. That's never how the process works. And so it seems weird that it looks like that's what happened with the process this time. Well, that looks like a good spot for a break here. So when we come back, we'll try to roll in a little faith component into this. And I got to admit, this is going to be a stretch on figuring something out. But I know with these brains at hand, we'll be, we'll be able to do that and, you know, extend our, our discussion on the faith that we have in not just elites, but how they face certain incentives to maybe distort things or retract things. So we'll pick up there in just a bit. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. Here at Ottawa, we have a new microeconomics course that's available to high school students. You can earn college credit through Ottawa University and have it count towards your high school credit if your high school allows. 
Um, or you'll just be able to transfer that to some other college uh, where you choose to go. But we hope you choose to come here. If you're looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, so back here, trying to weave in a faith component at some point, but Peter, you want to lead us off with your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I, I think it could be the case that this is just, you know, editors, as I mentioned, editors and original reviewers of this paper could have decided, well, you know, we didn't realize this or we made a mistake and the paper was retracted. But as I mentioned before the break, this seems like an instance of pressure influencing journal decisions. And this isn't actually the first time this has happened. You know, in 2017, there was an economics article published that got a lot of heat that was somewhat recently retracted. And the reason for the retraction was basically that the editor of the journal was being threatened, like with violence. And so, uh, you know, I think this is sort of a less discussed phenomena, but I think it's true that as the internet has made sort of academic work more accessible, you know, a nice side of that is that we, people have the chance to review the work themselves and see like, you know, is this work, you know, actually worth anything or not? But maybe a downside is, you know, I, I fear the idea of like, it's not exactly a democratization of science, but it's something like that, where now, you know, there's going to be basically, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, 10, 20 years from now, there to be organized lobby efforts against certain journals or certain papers by nonprofit institutions who are pushing agendas. You know, I, I fear that with, you know, more people getting more interested in what is happening in research at universities that we're going to have basically a, a dictated science that's determined by whatever institution is, you know, most interested in getting the right outcomes. And I just want to tack on before we go to Justin that, because I'm sure the listeners don't really get this. Science stands apart from opinion in that when these journal articles are created, they have followed the scientific process in that they had a hypothesis, they gathered some data, they used standard replicable statistical techniques to draw a conclusion if there was evidence that something had an influence on something else. Yeah. And and the way and that stands apart from what the normal news media we hear. And right. I, I want to make sure we're clear with that, that this is really important that if those institutions now are pushing against the science, which is, oh, it's the science, it's the science. And we heard the talking heads say that so many times. It's really bad because this is something that can be replicated. Other people can test it. Yep. That's why they have the peer review. It's totally different yeah. than And, and that, that peer review is the key. That's the way that it's checked so that this isn't just made up and it's not just opinion is every journal will have an editor and reviewers look over a paper. And this is not a short process. It's not like you get the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Sometimes in very rare instances, you'll get a thumbs up. A lot of people get the thumbs down. But usually what happens is someone gets what's called a revise and resubmit. And this is a process where the reviewer and the editors uh, or the editor and the reviewers basically say, here's what we like about paper. And here are a million problems that we have with your paper. (laughs) And I want you to make sure that you make me comfortable about all these million problems. And I know people who have gone through years long processes of back and forth with reviewers and editors before getting a paper accepted. I know people who go through multiple months and don't get accepted. And, you know, I, there is occasionally the short instance of, you know, you go through a couple rounds, like one or two and get accepted. But the point is that this is not like an easy process. It's not like you submit to a journal and you're done. 
most of the work comes after the submission, in my experience. So uh, I think the the idea that after the facts, after the official review, we're going to have another round of review, which is based off, you know, whether or not people find this finding acceptable. I, I think that that's extremely dangerous. Yeah. And so if, if the social media can run with titles of papers or snippets of comments that were in the conclusion or the abstract or something, it's going to kind of bring us down in ways that I don't think we're going to like. As I'm talking and thinking out loud, though, you know, if we ask, well, what's the influence of an academic paper on life? Well, most of the time, nothing. But we don't, I don't want it to go away. Well, and especially with, <laughs> especially with scientific papers, the, these are used as blunt instruments in politics to make arguments with, yes, right? that's right. Uh, is, so they, they serve the, the rhetoric function. But there's also, so, you know, I actually don't mind the idea of more scrutiny from the public of scientific papers. Like I mentioned before, I kind of think that that's a good thing that people now can look at the scientific papers themselves and discuss them. But what I dislike is that we have a really weird kind of institutional situation within academia where, you know, public universities, which are state funded, basically select for certain things in certain journals. Yeah. And there's these relationships with publishers. And so there's kind of a, a somewhat cronyist system going on here. And I, I hate the idea that because we're situated in this cronyist, you know, institutional framework, that there are people whose careers could be torpedoed by a bunch of angry people on the internet, not liking something they wrote after it was reviewed. And, you know, even if it's based on statistics rather than just opinion. So that, that's my fear is that because we exist in this weird institutional framework, then it can be used basically as a blunt tool to silence opposition. Justin? So I understand what Peter's saying with the, you know, the dangers of the possible democratization of science, but I think the real danger here is the scientism of everyone's everyday life now, where, you know, Michel Foucault was a famous philosopher in the 20th century, and he argued that, you know, uh, in past set, in past societies, religion was the thing that ordered people's lives and religious figures were authorities and they exercised kind of uh, tyranny because of that authority. And so Michel Foucault, you know, being anti-authoritarian, he thought religions were a problem in those societies. And then he says, now, our society doesn't have that religious problem, according to Foucault. He says what has taken up that role are scientists and doctors. And he says, you know, right now uh, we are under what, you know, he might call it like a medical tyranny or something like that. Now, you don't have to agree with Foucault that all authority is bad to agree with him that science has come to kind of replace religion as the mechanism by which a lot of people order their lives. Just drive around your, your town and look at those signs people put on their yard, you know, like we believe science or whatever. Science is just supposed to be, you know, the search for objective truth and not really caring about what that truth is. But mm -hmm. when people have made science their religion, right, the thing which orders their lives, then it becomes impossible for them to be impartial observers of science yeah. because any change or any scientific finding will impact the way they have to live their lives. And when you have a kind of, you know, say you, if you have, if you're a person of faith or a religion, you have things that are going to order your lives that science is not going to be able to touch, right? Somebody can talk to you about, you know, well, it's actually dangerous to pray or whatever. And you go like, 
I don't care. I, you know, I have, I'm a person of faith, so this is what I do. And you can come out with any scientific finding you want, and that won't touch these aspects of my life, which I order mm. around religion. But once you make science the guiding principle of your life, and we have heard nothing from our televisions for the past year and a half, except trust the science, then any change in scientific discovery is going to be very threatening to you. And that's what I think is driving this populist reaction to science, more so than the fact that people can access it, is Mm. that it can really, uh, any scientific finding now becomes dangerous. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Justin. I agree with you. I I think that's a better analysis. And I I think even more emphasis, or even even more evidence, rather, at that, that point is that the weird part is we actually have mechanisms by which you can respond to journal articles you disagree with. Certain journal articles will offer, offer the case the chance to write a rebuttal article. You can also like write a note on a previous article that's just a shorter paper explaining what you think of the paper. So if you know, you're a reasonable person and you think, oh, this paper is wrong, well, not only do you get this great thing where you get to respond and criticize the paper, you get a publication out of it. And so like you would think academics would love this idea of rebuttal. Mm-hmm. So why aren't we having rebuttals to this piece? Mm. And if it's That's because this piece goes against like an article of faith in a previously established, you know, scientism, religion of COVID, you know, stuff that the experts have decided, well, then we can't just rebut it. We have to retract it. Otherwise it's part of the edifice of our church and we can't have heresy in the edifice of our church. We have to take it out. (laughs) Exactly. So so I I think that makes a lot of sense that that might explain why instead of having rebuttals or notes, getting calls for retractions instead. It has to be memory hold. Yes. Yep. That's interesting. Well, this particular journal we did a little research on started in 2013. I was just trying to get my arms around whether this was a well-established, you know, 50, 60 year old journal or something, or if it was newer. So, you know, it's not, that's not a big chink in the armor, but if it's a seven, eight year old journal, they're trying to build a reputation or whatnot, they might've been a little more uh, protective of their reputation. And if they were getting smeared because of this publication, that might've been a little incentives to pull back. And I don't know who, you know, who else is, might be influencing their organization, but it's the type of stuff we talk about here with public choice and incentives. Can I also just say, when we talked about the religion versus science distinction earlier, one great thing about religions is that they do provide you with a way to live your life and a kind of structure on which you can not worry about certain things and actually focus on, you know, your relationships with your family, your kids, et cetera. You don't have to constantly be worrying about, you know, oh my, well, oh my God, should we be wearing three, two masks, three masks? You know, uh, (laughs) if you look at happy people, they aren't constantly trying to, you know, pee hack their lives to make it, you know, in, you know, (laughs) to make themselves, you know, an infinitesimal amount safer. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, gosh, you're you're making me think a lot here, Justin. One of the things that I've come to think more and more is that there's this old phrase, I'm stealing it from my pastor. I think he stole it from someone that man is uh, created to worship in a sense. And as a Christian, I really do believe this, that man, part of our anthropology is that we are going to be directed towards uh, a God of some sort. 
I think one of the big problems is that, you know, we had the new atheists in like the early 2000s and the 90s. And I think for the most part, that movement failed. But where I think it really succeeded is it convinced a generation that there was such a thing as not believing in a God. And I actually don't believe that that's true. I think there are people who don't believe in the type of God that I believe in, a a personal God, but I think everyone has a center to their lives. And so I I think, you know, one of the the important realizations over the next decade is going to be that regardless of if a person says they believe in a God or not, they do. They have a center of their life that they place their faith in because, you know, we can't know all things and therefore there has to be some leap of faith that's taken on some level. And I, I think this is like the classic, like Nietzsche observation, really, I, I'm not saying anything new, unique here, is that, you know, people get this wrong a lot, that Nietzsche said God is dead. And his point wasn't that, you know, there's no such thing as God. His, point, his, his next sentence was, and I'm afraid there's not enough water to wash away all the blood. Nietzsche was afraid that by getting rid of our traditional concept of God, we were going to replace it with something much worse. And that was the 20th century, right? And, and so I think one of the big things that we need to focus on doing Uh, as educators is sort of recreate this point that, you know, man will worship something and it's better to acknowledge that than pretend it's not true. Yeah. That's what Roger, the late great Roger Scruton would call the concept of the sacred. And he would say the concept of the sacred is something that, you know, we all have innately. Yeah. I, uh, maybe this is a good place to wrap. If there's not any final words, I I was going to bring up a expression that was at the end of every podcast of uh, Virtue in the Wasteland. That was a podcast that I was on at one point six years ago. I did a short little interview kind of faith and economics before we started this podcast, but uh, he would end with, and just remember, everything's going to be okay. (laughs) And that's with the Lord Jesus Christ in your corner. Uh, Everything's going to be okay. So this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. We'd like to thank you all for listening and uh, be sure to Give us a nice ranking if you like what you hear so that other people can find us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.